Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank, a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim Podcast. This is Ibrahim Khan, your host. And with me, we have an extremely special guest hailing from London, Ontario in Canada is Muhammad Ashur. He is the CEO and co-founder of Spire Foods Group, which is a really intriguing startup, actually, that has raised a large sum of money. And we can perhaps discuss, Muhammad, why we can't disclose the exact amount in just a second, or perhaps why we shouldn't. And the startup is focused around insect proteins and developing that for human consumption, i.e. eating things like crickets and the like. I don't know if the crickets one is the right insect. But anyway, there's some kind of insects involved that will be eaten. And from a fit perspective, especially like a Hanafi fit perspective, all sorts of Amber lights go off in my head. So it'd be great to talk about the fiqh of that. But I know that you're a very, alhamdulillah, learned man as well from an Islamic perspective. So you've done a lot of research into this. And if you were to offer me a cricket, I would eat it. Yeah. So with that, welcome, Muhammad. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Jazakallah khair. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. And as you know, huge excitement about just creating this kind of community for Muslims of all stripes who are looking at different ways to either exercise their entrepreneurship muscles, some of which may not even know they have them, like I did, and we'll talk about that in a second, or of course, just helping Muslims create wealth in a way that aligns with their values, which there are many, many ways, but alhamdulillah, I'm just very proud of the work you guys have done to help bring that to the mainstream and in a very accessible way. So kudos to you guys, and it's an honor to be here. Jazakallah khair. MashaAllah, you've done a lot in your relatively, I guess, short life. One of the things that we were discussing recently on IFG was about this kind of humbleness and self-promotion aspect when it comes to marketing oneself. And as a startup, I guess it's particularly difficult, right? Because you kind of have to, at certain points, say that we have done something well or we will do something well and you should trust us and therefore maybe give us a lot of money or transact with us. So how do you kind of think about that? whole question. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think to your point, there's a fine line between promoting services and competency and confidence from your customers, especially when you are a startup, because the term startup by definition elicits notions of risk and instability, right? Like, I mean, you can go to a big customer and offer to do a job for them and they'll ask you simple and embarrassing questions like, how do I know you have enough cash flow to literally pay for the equipment to build my swimming pool, right? If you're a small yeah. business. So I think there's an enormous need to be able to do that and to do that with confidence. But I think that it has to be fact based and ideally it has to be, if possible and available, done in a third party way. So for example, in my case, alhamdulillah, we've had a number of fairly high profile and fairly public and fairly circulated achievements in terms of the media, etc. So when I talk to an investor or a potential partner, instead of me aggrandizing myself, I can just send a link or send a bio or build a correct, accurate, fact-based and authentic LinkedIn page. LinkedIn allows you to put in your awards, your achievements, your credentials, and then send people a link to that, right? So again, it's you not speaking about it and 
embellishing or exaggerating anything. It's just all the facts are listed for people to evaluate them on their own merits. And if they're intrigued, explore things further. But it is a tough balance. And to be honest, I do think no matter what, especially this is true for anyone in a founder, CEO, CFO position where you're constantly meeting with investors, where you're constantly in sell mode, when you're constantly needing to advertise and promote what you're doing, you have to understand that even with your best intentions, you're still going to sometimes push a little bit beyond where you allow yourself your comfort zone. And I think there's two ways to sort of repent for that misstep. I think the first one is to acknowledge it, to acknowledge that, well, and we all are good at this. We're good at self-reflecting. We're self-aware. You know when you overdid it. You know when you exaggerated. You know when you use that much more colorful adjective. Afterwards, you can sit down and you can hold yourself accountable and say, you know what, next time I'm going to say it this way. Or if you really push the boundaries, you can send a follow-up email clarifying what you meant if you really feel beat up about it. But the other thing is surround yourself with people who will genuinely care for your spiritual health, who will hold you accountable and who will frankly call you out. Alhamdulillah, I'm blessed with a spouse who is very grounded and anytime I kind of get carried away, she's right there to remind me that I'm getting carried away. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's key, right? And same is true with my partners, my co-founders. So Alhamdulillah, I think that you can create the right checks and balances around you because you can't always be the best critic of whether you've pushed too far. You sometimes need friends and colleagues and coworkers to come in and say, hey, that thing you just said, yeah, we're actually three months away from that achievement, not a month away. And you just kind of overpromised a milestone that we're not comfortable with, that sort of thing. Makes a lot of sense. I can, I guess, sympathize and also agree with you on the point about the wife who will rein you in if you overstep the mark. They have this very remarkable ability to do that, mashallah. And if I remember correctly, you're Egyptian, right? Yeah, so my parents were born in Egypt. I was actually born in Saudi Arabia. I'm the youngest of three. I was born in Jeddah, actually. So alhamdulillah, I've been blessed to perform Umrah like dozens and dozens of times, although I have not been to Hajj. In fact, I was actually going to be going for Hajj this year, subhanAllah, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't will it, so I'm on the list for next year. Anyway, uh, yeah, I was born in Jeddah to Egyptian parents. Growing up, I could be anything in the world I wanted to be as long as it was doctor or engineer. (laughs) You talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, and certainly most of the entrepreneurs I know grew up in families where entrepreneurship was widely celebrated, where there was at least one or two successful entrepreneurial role models growing up, a parent, an uncle, a sibling, a cousin, etc., For me, actually, that was the furthest thing from the truth. So I actually grew up not only with no entrepreneurs on either side of my family. I mean, with the exception of this one great uncle, I think my mother has that I've never ever socialized with or met. But on top of that, I actually grew up with very much a significant dislike for corporate business in general. And it was long before the other factors around the financial aspect, it was really more driven by a sense of justice and a sense of looking at kind of the world and how there just isn't equal access to different opportunities. When I look at most corporations, they tend to appropriate resources for seemingly the sole purpose of maximizing shareholder value. And that ethos is so problematic because it could result in very significant short-term, rather sacrificing of long-term goals and benefits for the world, for the planet, for our environment, etc., in exchange for some very temporary and fleeting short-term gains. So that was sort of my worldview growing up. And again, it wasn't anti-business, but it was certainly not very excited about business. On top of that, like I mentioned, I did say this as a joke, but there is truth to it. I think most families, particularly in the Middle East, you look at my parents in Egypt, my father was the youngest of four siblings. He was an engineer. And right after school, he had a decision, either continue on with graduate studies in Cairo. Unfortunately, the economic situation was very poor or move to Saudi Arabia, which at the time was booming and was hiring every expat they could possibly find to help basically build this economy. Mashallah, he made the tough decision in hindsight, which was to take this leap of faith and to move and to try things. So you can argue there's some element of calculated risk taking that's there. But I think once parents go through that experience of risk, what they want for their kids, ironically, is 
for them not to take any risk. And you're a parent now, mashallah, the second child. I have three kids of my own. My wife and I have to remind ourselves that, listen, we became the people we did precisely by facing certain adversities and risks and being denied certain privileges. And all that helped us build our character. So it's ironic that now we're denying those same character building aspects to our kids by trying to shelter them away. So my point is there was a real emphasis on education and stable careers, which often are careers in medicine and healthcare and government and so on and so forth. Growing up, I really gravitated towards helping people and serving people. It was its own reward. Alhamdulillah, it happens to be part of the fitrah of our deen, giving charities for every joint in your body. So I just grew up with this very natural and instinctive, genuine love and passion for helping people. That carries on through today, alhamdulillah. And so medicine just really appealed to me because it seemed like the most obvious way to channel that. And at the same time, it's intellectually stimulating, it's challenging, it's hands-on. There's aspects that appeal to me as well, not to mention, of course, lifestyle and all these other important considerations. We moved to Canada in 1998. I did my elementary school, high school, and then I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto in Mississauga in life sciences. I applied to medical school, did not get in. So then I went and did a master's degree in neuroscience. My ultimate goal was to become a neurosurgeon. And there's just academic inflation everywhere you go. I mean, you can't be a neurosurgeon now in Canada, to my knowledge, without having a PhD or at least a master's and several years of fellowship. That's after your seven years of residency, which are after your four years of medical school. So you're talking about just enormous academic inflation, right? You've been a neurosurgeon for about four years before you need a neurosurgeon yourself. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's the reality we're seeing here. So I did my master's degree and subhanAllah, as it happened, after I finished that degree, I applied to medical school again, hoping that by the time I finish this program, I will enroll in the next one subsequently thereafter. But for the second time, I didn't gain admission. So now I had another year out of school. I had to figure out what am I going to do while I go through another application cycle. So I had a year to spend doing something. So I had two choices at the time that were practical. The first was to just continue working in the same graduate lab that I just got my master's degree in. My supervisor was happy to pay me the extortionist wages that are given to graduate students because, I mean, he had spent two years developing these skills that I now have that could be useful to his lab. Jokes aside, it was actually a fair and reasonable offer. I just didn't feel like that's a real opportunity for growth. It just felt like doing more of the same. On the flip side, I decided, you know what, I have a year. I'm about to commit myself essentially indefinitely to medicine and studying and being in school. Let me go and push myself outside my comfort zone and work for a startup. And that's what was maybe the first major shift in my life. And one of the biggest pieces of advice I give anyone who wants to become an entrepreneur is go work for a startup. Learn on someone else's dime, right? Like you don't have to pay the tuition value. All those Mythical stories we hear about people who built a business out of their garage on their credit cards, which you should never do. Those stories, I think, are there and perhaps are illustrative of a certain Silicon Valley romanticized mythology of entrepreneurship. But in reality, there are great and seamless and quick ways to kind of become an entrepreneur. And I think one of them is to just try it out without having to take on all the risk yourself. So I went to work for this tech startup in Waterloo, Ontario. And alhamdulillah, it was a really unique experience. I first arrived and I was hoping that I could work from home. At the time, it was a sales position and it was all digital. So you can just do remote demos on your laptop. So I went to interview and the CEO said, look, you seem like a really energetic guy. You look like you could be a good salesman, but I don't feel comfortable putting you in front of my professors yet, who are the customers that were being sold to. So I'd like you to come in and work in the office as an inside sales rep, which is really a glorified way of calling it a cold calling job. My job was to basically hammer the phone, call professors all day and book demos for the actual sales reps to do the demonstration. But he made me an interesting promise. He said, if you crush it in this inside sales role for the next month, I'll promote you to an outside sales rep. You can move back to Montreal, which is where I wanted to go to medical school and you can work from home. So the third day on the job, I noticed that the sales cycle of the software company were, of course, determined by the academic school year. And the academic school year starts in the fall and continues in the winter. So you kind of have to do sales for the fall semester in the summer, right, prior to enrollment and the same for the winter. So the time I started the company, it was kind of a dead and quiet time in North America because the school season was already in place. 
So I thought, well, why don't we look at Australia and New Zealand, which actually right now their school cycles are about to start. So we can take advantage of this quiet time and draw up new business. So the CEO said, look, that's a cool idea. We've actually contemplated it before, but I mean, who's going to stay around and call Australia and New Zealand? I mean, you'd have to start making phone calls at nine o'clock in the evening. I said, well, if I'm willing to do that, would you be okay with it? He said, yes. I said, okay, but would you be okay with it on the condition that any schools or any professors I book, I will sell to them? He said, sure. So subhanAllah, like I think about a week later, it was pure tawfiq from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like just these things happen. And I actually closed a school in Australia, which had never happened before, right? Prior to that, it would just be like you could get a department, you can get a few profs, but to close an entire school is a fairly significant achievement. And so a month later, when I was up for a review, the CEO sat me down and said I had good news and bad news. Now, here I am anxious to move back to Montreal, work from home so I can get geared up. He's like, the good news is you did a really good job. The bad news is you did such a good job that I want you to actually work in the office permanently now as the VP of sales. And I want you to manage our sales team. <laughs> so my wife and I talked together. And remember, you're talking to somebody who applied twice to medical school and didn't get admitted. So it seemed unreasonable for me to forego such an exciting opportunity on the off chance that I might be admitted this third time. And also... Yeah the whole bird in hand philosophy. So I decided to go for it. I came back to Montreal, emptied our apartment, moved permanently back to Waterloo. And subhanAllah, we were doing great. The company went through extraordinary growth. I mean, when I started there, there was maybe 14 or so salespeople. By the time I left, which was only six months later, it was about 60 salespeople. And that's the irony. The way you said, by the time I left, it was like, it's going to be five years. Yeah, well, subhanAllah, it was short-lived because the third month on the job, I get an interview to McGill, and then a month later, I get an offer of admission. But what's interesting is I actually changed my application in the last minute because of this experience at this startup to the MD-MBA program. So that's a five-year program, the first year is business school, followed by four years of medicine. Interesting. So when I got admitted... I decided, yeah, no, I'm going to follow my dream, inshallah, as much as this was a fun ride, guys. And in a parallel universe, I would have loved to continue and just ride this rocket ship. But really, my passion is elsewhere. So I came to McGill, and subhanAllah, I started the MBA program. And the first month, I get an email that completely changed the trajectory of my future. It was an invitation to participate in a business competition called the Halt Prize, which is the largest business prize in the world. It's a $1 million prize, and the idea was to inspire entrepreneurs to build a business that can solve a major global challenge, which spoke right to my heart because that was the pain point I've always had with business, that it didn't seem to have good associated with its outcomes. So I put together a team and we started doing some research and the challenge that year was food security. Who can build a business that within 10 years can create food security for about 20 million people? And so we started looking at this issue of food security. And for me, to be honest, I mean, I grew up obviously... It's not so much that we didn't care about sustainability. It's that I don't think in general we're very educated. This was, I mean, at the time during my upbringing. I mean, I think now we have very, very educated young people around the world and Muslim majority countries. But there just really never was this intensive education. I grew up in Saudi Arabia. Unfortunately, there was no such thing as recycling. Growing up, like, it was perfectly fine to throw trash on the floor. These are things that are horrifying now, even there. Now that's not acceptable there either, right? But that was the reality growing up. But I just became very intimately aware of how one problem leads to another problem. So our food production system is placing an extraordinary amount of stress on our planet. To feed 7.5 billion people today, we're using landmass equivalent to the entire continents of Africa, North America, and Europe. We're using about 80% of the world's freshwater resources in agriculture. The problem is that's today. We're going to need to double our food production in the next 30 years, according to the United Nations FAO, because we're going to have three more billion people. And the other challenge is, as we're seeing a shrinkage in resources, we're seeing an explosion in appetite. So not only are we going to have more people in absolute terms, but people as a household are going to be consuming more than they did historically. And actually, one of the first things people do when they exit poverty into the next immediate rung up on the ladder is they start to consume meat. And the challenge behind why our food production system is so taxed is because most of our food and most of our protein comes from livestock. And most of the livestock we consume are extraordinarily inefficient at converting feed 
into protein. So if you think of a cow, a cow needs to eat about eight kilos of feed to give you one kilo of beef. And so when you do that math and you realize how much land needs to be farmed and irrigated and fertilized and all the shipping logistics associated with literally producing the feed just to feed our animals. I mean, in the last, I think, 15 years, we've functionally deforested about 91% of the Amazon, which is one of the most biodiverse ecologies on the planet, literally to create fields of soy and corn so that we can produce ethanol for emissions and so we can produce food for cows and for other livestock. So we're trading some of the most extraordinary real estate on the planet to produce feed so we can feed cows because these animals are just not efficient and unfortunately their biology hasn't changed well made them the way they are. So what does that mean? It means if we want to place less stress on our planet's resources, we need to find and eat foods that have a lower stress on our planet in terms of the resources they consume. So when we look at animals, chickens do a lot better than cows. Their feed conversion is not eight to one, but closer to two and a half to one. So significantly better, but still high. So we found that there's a source of protein that's been consumed by billions of people. It's recognized in our Dean, actually, having been consumed at the time of the Prophet by Sahaba. And it's arguably the most ancient source of protein that humans have ever consumed. And it's actually insects. Now, not all insects are food. In fact, the vast majority of insects are not food from a health perspective, forget from a fiqh perspective, right? When you think of insects as a taxonomy and as a species and as a group, you're talking about millions of species around the world. Less than 1% of these are classified as edible by food standards, not by fiqh standards. So about maybe 12 to 1300 species are edible. And mind you, of that, like 30 of those are all a variety of cricket. 40 of those are a variety of locusts. So really, we're talking about maybe a handful of insects that are classified as properly edible. And insects are so efficient at converting what they eat into biomass. For a cricket, it's 1.1 kilos of feed produces about one kilo of protein. So it truly is what it eats. Now, I'll be honest, when we first came across this idea, which was quite sensational, having been raised by Egyptian parents, but also grown up and socialized in Canada, neither of those are cultures and countries where insects are widely consumed. So it was really out there. And personally, I was really on the fence about my own personal kind of squeamishness about the idea. And then subhanAllah, you start doing more and more research and you look more objectively at what you eat. You look at lobsters. Most people don't realize that in the 1800s, lobsters were considered the cockroach of the sea. In the United States, in Maine, Lobsters used to pile up on the shore six feet high and nobody would touch them with a 10 foot pole. In wow. fact, it got to a point where farmers would literally mince lobsters and throw them on fields as a fertilizer wow. because nobody would eat them. And it got to a point where lobsters were now only fed to indentured servants at the time and prisoners. And even they didn't want to eat lobsters. There's actually a law in Maine and it's comical and I looked it up and it's actually still there that it's considered cruel and unusual punishment to feed a prisoner lobster more than three times a week. And you look at shrimp and all these other things that we eat. I mean, you look at it objectively. How is a locust any more than just a terrestrial shrimp, right? Long story short, we realize that although there are so many people around the world who consume insects, there isn't a real supply chain for producing them at scale and at high quality. Muhammad, if I just chip in there, I mean, to any listener listening, that is a textbook example of how you should do a pitch. <laughs> and you started off, because humans, we're crocodiles, right? As soon as you've read that book about pitch anything, yeah, uh, yeah, that is textbook. So you set the kind of seed here, or kind of two or three obvious moving kind of, you can see that there's a change happening. If we carry on, this is absolute disaster. Yeah. We're interested. We can kind of see where that's going. And then you're like, OK, and you kind of deepen it and you narrow it. OK, here's a particular problem, particular problem, particular problem. And then you're like, OK, well, we can see where this is going. I'm intrigued to find out more. And I've stopped it here because this was just the punchline. Right. And now you're going to give the solution over to you, Muhammad. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I think for us, we realized that although insects as a solution would work, they would only work if you can come up with a way to make them accessible, affordable, available and safe for consumption globally. Because right now, if you go to a place like Oaxaca, Mexico, or even if you go to somewhere in the rural outskirts of Saudi Arabia, where locusts are just kind of harvested from the wild, 
The problem with that is, number one, it's seasonal. You're just waiting for when this insect sort of goes through its life cycle and emerges for the two or three months in the summer. So you concentrate your consumption for that period of time. So it's not available year round. So that's one problem. The other problem is it's not safe. You don't know what these locusts or what these grasshoppers are consuming. And even though maybe they're consuming a lot of leafy greens or grass, you don't know how much pesticide has been applied and how much chemicals have been put onto those fields. And that's important because if insects are as efficient as we describe, then their bioaccumulation of these toxins is not trivial. The third problem is affordability. If you go to Oaxaca, Mexico in July to buy grasshoppers, one kilo of grasshoppers is more expensive than a kilo of beef, chicken, and pork combined. And that's because the supply is so constrained, the demand is so high that obviously these premiums are paid. So we figured, what if we can come up with a way to actually farm these insects year-round? We exist in a moment in technological history where we now have vertical farming capability. We have IoT sensor data. We actually can have applied artificial intelligence. We have precision farming agriculture. If we can synthesize existing technologies and build upon them and develop an indoor vertical farming system for producing certain insects that are edible at scale, we could build one of, if not the most dense protein production system in the world and the most ethical because these are insects that are nocturnal and that thrive in sort of conditions with many other insects. So it's not like factory farming chickens where the chickens are on top of each other and they're not accessing feed and they're in their own sort of manure and so on and so forth. And this could be revolutionary because you could build these farms in any geography, even in a desert, provided you have access to sufficient energy resources. And so that became our idea. So we entered this competition that emerged from that email that I received that put together a team from my MBA cohort. We came up with this concept and we started doing some piloting. And alhamdulillah, there was 10,000 companies from around the world that applied in this competition. And it was a tournament style. And so in September 23rd, we were invited to New York as one of the five global finalists. So we went through the process and it went from 10,000 to five. And we were actually the first up to pitch in front of a panel of judges that included the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Hamad Yunus, President Bill Clinton, the head of the World Food Bank. It was a really decked out, actually the president of Standard Chartered Bank. There was a heavy hitting crowd, not to mention all the ministers and others that were in attendance because it was the opening night of the Clinton Global Initiative weekend. All the shayateen were there. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> no, I know that sounds like one hell of a panel to pitch to. It was. It was intense. And like I said, we were up first and we had 10 minutes. So imagine you just spent the last year developing your idea, pitching it, piloting it, testing it, and you have 10 minutes to present everything and then five minutes of Q&A and that's it. And after everybody presents, only one company gets a million dollars. And alhamdulillah, we were fortunate to be that company and we won that million dollar prize. And that became the seed capital that allowed us to launch our business. I'm happy to get back to how we've sort of scaled since then and what we've done. But let me maybe pause and take a quick detour to have a conversation around sort of the fit of consuming insects. Obviously, something, as you can imagine, that was very important for me to understand at the outset, just as a consumer, never mind as the entrepreneur, right? Like, I mean, I can't be selling something that I myself have qualms about consuming it. This is something I've looked at extensively, and I really ended up down a rabbit hole, really, to understand our food system and the fiqh of our food system Islamically, because I think the first thing we must appreciate is that the way we grow, process, and consume food today has radically changed compared to what things used to be like, obviously, in the last 1400 years at different stages, but especially after the industrial revolution, just the way we mass produce food and mass process it and mass package it. And I think it's important to have that in mind because I actually think most of us, even those who are very hardcore about Zabiha and making sure that your meat is really, really Sharia compliant, the standard has to be elevated to not just include the bare minimum requirements of the meat being spiritually clean, but a realization of what are the conditions in which this animal was raised, what treatment was this animal subjected to, what quality of feed was this animal given. And unfortunately, increasingly, a lot of so-called sort of Islamic and very Sharia-compliant halal certifying bodies do the bare minimum. And in many cases, 
you could argue that the spirit of alignment between the way sort of some of the halal butcheries out there uh, certify is actually further from what the Sharia is asking for than some of the organic and pasture-raised farms. And that's not to say that this is okay and this is okay, or this is not to use one against the other. It's just to illustrate that our discourse around what is deemed halal and tayyib needs to really evolve with the lens of understanding that the way we produce food today is just not the same. And I think, alhamdulillah, there's a lot of fuqaha and ulama who are really, really beginning to understand the agricultural side of how our food is produced and who are beginning to apply more, I wouldn't say strict, but more higher ethical standards on what and how we deem things to be halal. But as it relates to insects specifically, as you can appreciate, mashallah, we have diversity in our deen and, and diversity in schools of thought, and this is no different here. This is definitely not an area where there is unanimous consensus by all of the schools of thought. So the Maliki school actually takes probably the most liberal position here, which is pretty much that insects in general are considered acceptable. There's nothing inherently problematic about insects for consumption. All hail the Maliki Madhab. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, Interestingly, the way the other madahib treat insect consumption is more nuanced in the sense of the scriptural reference that is typically used is the reference to khabath, and khabath typically refers to filth. And there are some earlier interpretations of this that suggested that insects may be classified as khabath, and that's because some types of insects, when you think of cockroaches or a lot of the insects that feed on waste and trash and things like that, they are khabith from the perspective that what it consumes is unhealthy and unsafe and impure. And as such, it itself becomes impure for consumption. And that is perfectly reasonable and sensible. But as we discussed, not all insect species are edible. So although there are, in fact, some cockroach farms in parts of China where cockroaches are reared for food, cockroaches, in my view at least, this would be a very difficult line. I would have to really understand what are they being fed exactly. Because in other aspects, if you can demonstrate the supply chain, what is the food that this insect eats? If you can demonstrate that it's a clean food, and of course, that the food itself, the feed itself is halal and so on and so forth, then the insect by definition becomes halal. So the khabath in many cases is strictly speaking, focusing on the environment in which the insect is thriving and the feed the insect itself consumes. Now, there are some nuances also around hopping insects versus larval insects. When you think of like worms and mealworms versus grasshoppers and locusts. I mean, locusts and grasshoppers, I think there is almost unanimous consensus, even amongst all of the schools of thought, having there being evidence, of course, of Sahaba consuming locusts and the Prophet Sallallahu and so on and so forth. But the trick now becomes, can you do the qiyas for this aspect of hopping insects and apply that across the board to other insects. And I think that's where the different schools of thoughts have differed. So that's the brief primer on kind of how the treatment of insect consumption is. But again, as I emphasize, I think that as consumers, we all know the whole story and sort of the gaff of the people who kept asking, was it three people in a dog? Was it five people in a dog? Was it and this notion that in our deen, we should strive not to overburden ourselves by asking too many specific questions. But on the flip side, I do think that we also shouldn't absolve ourselves of some very basic due diligence, especially when we have kind of a gut feeling that says, I should probably look into this. And I think every one of us as a consumer has to understand the very simple and basic fact that the consumption decisions you make today, and I'm talking now food, literal nutrition that goes in your body, has an inextricable effect on the planet's resources, on the ethical treatment of animals and plants, and on access to food to people in other parts of the world. And that's probably the single most invisible part of our choice whose consequence we don't evaluate as well as we should. You look in the 1980s, quinoa was all the rage in the early 90s as well, in North America and Europe, right? All the vegetarian craze, quinoa is the new superfood, etc. So what happened? Well, North America and Europe starting to import quinoa like gangbusters. Well, where's quinoa grown? It's actually preferentially only grown in certain topological environments in Bolivia and Peru and a few other South American countries. Okay, but do we realize that 
quinoa is actually a staple food in those countries. Like it's literally like rice. It's the food that the peasants and the poor people consume. So what happened in the 80s? Well, what happened was farmers started exporting their quinoa, all of it, because they got a massive premium paid for it. And there was a chronic shortage of protein and food for those who were local. Now, some later argued, yeah, but it's okay because it created prosperity for the farmers. But no, because it kind of almost created a boom and bust cycle. And the same thing happened in India with its agriculture in the last decade as well. So we have to understand that sometimes even our well-intentioned, me going to get my superfood bowl at Freshy or Subway or Whole Foods or whatever, and I feel like I'm such a sophisticated and mashallah, aren't I so great that I'm eating a plant-based? Yeah, but you have to understand what is the supply chain here and where is this coming from? No, I hear you on that. I'm very much on board with what you're trying to do. I mean, even from almost like a durur or haja aspect, the data is just so clear that if we don't act now, then we're going to kill people. We're going to destroy the planet and that's going to cause millions upon millions of deaths and it's very clear and i'm ready for a grasshopper burger we'll hook you guys up it must confuse your listeners to hear that there's another london that isn't in the united (laughs) (laughs) you're a very confusing man you're like growing crickets in like a vertical farm in a london that isn't london you are confusing you should have seen the disorientation my parents experienced when i sat them down to finally explain that my lifelong dream of becoming a doctor that I've finally been able to achieve, I'm now going to forego and instead move down to Texas to ranch crickets. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a conversation you should have filmed or something. Oh, uh, indeed, yeah. Muhammad, I wanted to ask you about entrepreneurship. You clearly had, alhamdulillah, a lot of success in the kind of ideation stage, And then also, I think, in the sales and marketing aspect, and I think fundraising aspect as well. I guess, what would you, I don't know, your top three tips for aspiring entrepreneurs at each of these kind of stages? What would your thoughts be instinctively? Yeah. So, I mean, off the top of my head, I would say you have to, number one, not take things personal. And I know that sounds cliche and it sounds easier said than done. But to be honest, being rejected hurts especially for anyone who's a type A go-getter, who's used to what is the formula for winning? I apply that formula. I expect results. You study, you go to your exam, you expect to harvest what you've planted, right? But that's not how it works in business. You could do everything right and it still doesn't happen. And that's where you have to understand that this is a, there's tawfiq, I see it from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that's the X factor in all of this. We can call it luck outside of the realm of our worldview, and that's how it's often referred to as. But I think this notion that everything you do when it goes well is the result of your benevolent brilliance, and when things go poorly, it's because you did poorly, I think we need to take a step back from that and understand that there's an aspect here of tawfiq that cannot be discounted. So I'd say, number one, don't take things personally, and that means you have to move on quickly. So you go to an investor, an investor rejects you, listen and open your ears to the criticism that you got. Sometimes you'll hear nuggets of wisdom that could be transformative for your business or cause you to pivot. That's one aspect. The other aspect is don't take too much advice from too many people. I think Vinod Khosla, who's a very successful Silicon Valley venture capitalist whose venture firm actually is by his own name, Coastal Ventures, I think he's famous for saying something to the effect that whom you ask for advice and on what subject maybe the single most important decision you'll ever make as an entrepreneur. I actually couldn't agree more. For instance, we all know that our parents are amazing sources of wisdom. You just had a child. It might be great to have a conversation with your father or your mother to say, okay, we're having this issue. How did you guys deal with this or whatever? But given that my father's an engineer who has no experience in, let's say, corporate finance, it would make no sense for me to go to my father for wealth management tips. I mean, he can certainly parlay whatever wisdom he has, and I'll gladly listen, but There's an aspect of you have to assign a higher weight ratio to a specific opinion based on expertise and experience. And that's not a personal affront on anyone. That's just you being sensible in certain voices and taking others with a grain of salt. And then I would say the last thing is make sure that you surround yourself by people who are not just going to say yes to everything you want, especially if you're a very kind of 
strong personality, very charismatic. People tend to be persuaded by what you say. Make sure you have a healthy dose of people who are very comfortable pushing back, very comfortable, in fact, thrive on pushing back. Because those are the kinds of people that will give you the right amount of quality controlling in your decision making and in just your behavior that will be crucial to the success of the business. I think those are really good points. I mean, particularly the being choosy about the advice. Some people say, oh, don't read anything or don't take any advice and kind of just crack on and work it out yourself. Other people say, listen to everyone and kind of everyone, there's a kernel of truth. I almost think of it as a kind of keep it coming. You need to have that dialectic of input and output coming on. Like if you're doing entrepreneurship, you should be finding out and learning about entrepreneurship, but make sure that you are learning and reading enough so that it's almost like a backing vocal in a soundtrack. Um, And it's like, it gives you a kind of general kind of the salt in the cricket biryani that you make. It kind of holds it all together. All of the kind of advice you get, you average it out. Obviously, adjusting for certain people will give really great advice and you give that a bit more oomph. But then overall, you have to make that decision yourself. And there's nothing, I think, worse than a startup founder without conviction, because if you don't have conviction, you're going to be pulled this way or that way. One day someone will say the way you do sales is by letting people come to you. And then someone else will say you have to go out and be a go getter. And they'll both make very convincing arguments. And then if one day you're doing one thing and the other day you're doing the other thing, you're not going to end up anywhere. So I guess I agree with that and having that conviction. And I think the first one about the personal Actually, I've completely forgotten what you said about the first point you made. Just to not take things personal, especially reaction and failure. Of course. We, as an angel syndicate where we invest in startups, we very much sit on both sides of that table every single month, at least once or twice a month, because the startup pitches to us and we say no or we say yes. And then we turn around to the angels and they say no and they say yes. I guess there's various different ways of understanding the no. And I've kind of, I think, got much better at understanding the no, having said no many times. And I think sometimes even when someone says no, but without really giving any good reasons, that in itself is a really fascinating learning point, because I suspect the reason why they're saying that no is because it's about you and it's about the team or it's about something particularly personal, which is just very difficult to say. It's very easy to say to a founder, look, great idea, but not sure if you've got the market size for this to become really big. Or I think you're a bit early. The traction isn't just there yet. Fine. But if it's like, I just don't have trust in you to be able to sell this idea, that's very hard to say over an email. And so I guess you have to kind of read between the lines as well in what people are saying. So Mohammed, what about when it comes to the fundraising side of things as well? As I said earlier, you gave fantastic pitch obviously you weren't pitching for money but i guess over the years you've developed that natural style of developing that narrative and all that sort of thing so what would you be your kind of top tips for people who are looking to fundraise in terms of what has the most kind of i guess impact that's a subject i can talk about extensively and it could potentially be the subject of a future discussion we have inshallah but you know off the top of my head i'll say a few things number one do yourself a favor and make sure that you do your homework about who the investor is and you preliminarily define whether they're actually a good fit. Back to nobody likes rejection. Do yourself a favor and don't put yourself in embarrassing situations that were entirely avoidable, right? So if you know that this is an investor that, let me take a step back. Step number one, please do not immediately and fully embrace the propaganda on an investor's website that says that they are sector agnostic, space agnostic. They all about the founder. They love everything, all of that. And I'm not saying that to doubt the intentions or the sincerity of the fact that these investors may very well feel like they're that sort of renaissance investor who will look at everything and anything at any stage. The fact of the matter is every investor without exception has a sweet spot because An investor is not just giving you their money, which is most entrepreneurs think is what it's about. They're giving you their time. This investor has a fund typically, and that fund has a timeline, and that timeline is a shot clock. So they have to make a handful of very calculated bets, and there are opportunity costs. So when you ask them for money, what you're asking them to do is you're asking them to forego hundreds of other companies and choose you. And 
for them to make that decision, they have to be really confident, not just that you and your team have the right ingredients and the secret sauce to inshallah be successful. They have to feel like they can help you get there, that they can tap into their networks. They can help you with certain calls with key clients. They can help you raise incremental capital, et cetera, et cetera. So if you can go on their website, and here's the thing. The beautiful thing is there's always a tab that says our portfolio or our investments or whatever. Look at what they've invested in. Look at three things. One, who are they predominantly investing in? And does that look like you? The answer is no. There's a chance it's probably not a fit. Not ruled out yet, but let's move on to the second thing. How many investments have they actually made in the last six months and in the last 12 months? Because that's another indicator of whether they're in the beginning of the life of their fund and therefore they still have a lot of dry powder and they're still active and looking to make a lot of investments or at the end of their fund where their risk appetite is much, much smaller and they can't afford to make bad bets and they're typically looking for later stage companies. So again, it's not your fault. They're going to say no. It's just because the stage and life cycle of the fund doesn't match when you two have decided to intersect. And then the third thing you look at is the actual companies themselves they've invested in, how are they doing? And if you could call one or two of those companies, ideally, and nowadays you can't. I get messages on LinkedIn from people all the time. Hey, this investor that you guys have looked at, we're talking to them. Can can I just pick your brain for a few minutes about what these guys specialize in or whatever? So that way you do your job of vetting your investor such that, yes, you might have a shorter list of investors to approach, but your likelihood of getting a yes is much higher. And I'm saying that because I used to be the guy who will talk to any and every investor, like in the earlier days of Aspire. And that's the other thing, too. If you're three months and you're running out of cash and you're running on fumes, you probably don't have a ton of time to sit there and be nuanced. You'll talk to whoever will write a check at that point. And at that moment, when you're in survival mode, yeah, you got to do what you got to do to keep the business going. But you're early in your fundraising cycle and you're now sitting down and formulating your strategy. These are the steps I think you should take. And when it comes to due diligence, when it comes to your presentation, you have to be really clear about your product, your market, your go-to-market strategy, and no BS, right? So like we are serving a trillion dollar market. Okay. I get that like the global protein market, literally protein that's eaten by humans and animals and pigs everywhere always is 1.6 trillion. But of that 1.6 trillion, how much are crickets actually likely in the next five to 10 years to displace? All of a sudden a much more reasonable Amount And still, it's an ambitious one. It's in the billions. It's meaningful. But you don't have to anchor to these stupendously large numbers to tell a compelling story. In fact, when you do that, you almost can signal that you don't actually know what yeah. your go-to-market strategy is. Yeah, agreed with that. For, I guess, U.S. investors and to some extent, I guess, British investors as well, there's a few interesting tips on the investments made and the fund size and where they are in the journey, that's a really good point. And you can look at the SEC filings and various mm-hmm. different filings. I mean, if you're a bit savvy about it and dig through and find out what's the name of the fund and ideally the legal name of the fund. And you can do that as well by kind of digging through. I'm not sure on the US side or the Canadian side, I'm sure they'll have public registries where you can do this, but kind of work out the name of the fund partner and then from that work out the name of the entity and you can work out quickly if the fund when it made its first kind of close because that's when they usually have to file they typically have to file i think every fund close and all of the information is public and if that's typically it's in the first three to four years where they're deploying so you can work out very quickly where they are in the fund cycle and then in terms of where they're investing again for uk startups just look at company's house because these guys will be directors or shareholders and all of their shareholdings will be just listed there. So even if they don't necessarily have absolutely everything, even the latest stuff on their website, this is very up to date because that's where they will definitely have that up to date. You can get a lot of really interesting under the skin data just by doing a bit of legal sleuthing around. Mohammed, I think we should probably wrap up there. I think I am going to take you up on this offer to talk about fundraising dynamics. I think that'll be really good fun. And maybe I'll ask Mohsin to join us as well. I'm happy to. And I just realized I never actually head on addressed your question of why am I not disclosing how much we raise, which I'm happy to do. Although maybe we touched upon it in the 
earlier segment around humility, etc. But there are actual strategic, not just Islamic reasons for that. And we can probably get to that in our next conversation, right? So if you're in stealth mode, for example, you don't want people to size you up or there's a key announcement you're looking to make down the road. So you're kind of holding on to this. So we can get into all of that, inshallah. But I do think that a dedicated conversation of how to raise capital from investors. And I think my experience is interesting because we are arguably the hardest company to raise money for. And I say that because we combine all of the ugly baby attributes of the business that Silicon Valley doesn't want to touch with a 10 foot pole. It's CapEx intensive. It's crazy CapEx intensive, right? There's enormous amounts of R&D. It's bleeding edge. There's no meaningful traction. There's no major food companies in the world today using this product. You're building the product and the market at the same time. So yes, you have a Tesla opportunity where if you're able to certify the opportunity for the broader market that people desire electric vehicles, whether or not they buy your Model S, you're going to have a huge, huge outsized market share because you're pretty much going to be the monopoly in that space. But that's the upside. The downside is this thing has 150 different ways it can crash and burn. So my point is I'm happy to speak to it because I think that and I've gotten my fair share of no's and all of these things that say Good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. I've had a fair share of bad judgment in terms of all these things, talking to people unselectively, taking things personally, sometimes pivoting and being whipped around by different investors to move in directions that they think make sense, but you don't. And then you mature and you get smarter and alhamdulillah, you get some traction. And then there's other aspects as well to, okay, now that you have an investor in a term sheet, now negotiating the deal and equity and founder equity and all those complicated things that, again, I've dealt with. I've had the founders of the Hulk Prize, the team at McGill. It's nice. A bunch of MBAs may be the team that's needed to win a million bucks, but that's not the team needed to now build a global insect farming business. How do you have those awkward conversations and things like that? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Let's maybe pick up offline and diarize something, inshallah. But Muhammad, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned a hell of a lot about all sorts of things. And yeah, I wish you all the best. I think you're doing fantastic work. And yeah, let's keep podcasting, inshallah. Inshallah, for sure, man. Jazakallah khair. Enjoy the baby. Jazakallah khair. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.